FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Here we go, another brand new week at Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, very happy to have you with us. Um, In just a moment, we're going to be talking about a very, very fraught subject. Um, Schools reopening, K-12, through state, private, and public universities, parents, teachers, uh, staffers, uh, so many others, administrators concerned about what school will look like they're still in just the weeks before uh, schools be, are supposed to begin opening. Great um, uncertainty about how all this will unfold. And I do want to get to that, in, and I'll introduce our panel in uh, just a moment. But I, I think it's important to start the show by saying um, this is a week that is going to be filled with deep, deep emotion, a look at American history, and I suspect also comparisons to where we stand as a country right now as uh, John Lewis is laid to rest uh, after a, a series of honors that uh, he will uh, be paid, in which he'll be paid tribute. He's at the U.S. Capitol today. There will be an invitation-only uh, mem- memorial in the rotunda of the Capitol attended by political leaders, and then his body will lay in state on the East Front steps uh, outside, uh, mindful of what the virus could do if people are gathered inside. And we know that it's likely that there will be long lines of people to pay tribute, uh, coming to pay tribute to him on the Capitol. He returns to Atlanta on Wednesday. There will be another lying in state in the state Capitol rotunda, and uh, services at the state capitol. And then, of course, Thursday, the funeral at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Uh, We'll be talking about John Lewis throughout this week in our various shows. And just very briefly today, uh, Jim Galloway, who, of course, is my partner on Monday and Friday shows. um, Jim, I thought watching the caisson carrying John Lewis's body across the Edmund Pettus Bridge yesterday was one of the most deeply moving moments that I can ever recall. It, it literally stopped me from being able to breathe for a few minutes, Jim. It was extraordinary. And then, and then came the salute from Alabama State Troopers. And that was yeah. just, that, that, that was a moment for the ages, I think. It, it was exceptional. Um, and and it, it really brought home the power of what this man's life was all about. And, and for the first time, I think, ever in my life, I thought, oh, we do get to rest at the end of whatever we've been through. And few people have been through what John Lewis was in terms of his fight for civil rights. Tracy uh, Pendley is with us. She's a fourth grade teacher at Burgess Peterson Academy. She was the Georgia Teacher of the Year in 2020. Tracy, real quick, before I introduce everybody else and get to schools uh, in terms of the virus and all, how do your fourth grade students learn about John Lewis? Good morning, everyone. Happy to be here. You know, I um, through everyday news and conversation and community building. You know, this has been a really eventful summer, and there's I've heard a lot of people saying how they're nervous to talk about racial injustice in the classroom and how do they do it and what is it in the standards. 
Um, our Georgia standards are kind of light on a lot of history, particularly in the elementary years. But we start with the news, everyday conversation, um, and answering them honestly, always, and being truthful about what it means to be in the skin that I'm in. And do they learn about John Lewis and his uh, and his work early on about the try the effort to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge, the uh, pushback, the yeah. uh, the violence by Alabama law enforcement? Not in the Georgia standards until fifth grade, um, but we do a lot of other <laughs> research. For example, we read his book "Preaching to the Chickens." Ah, okay. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, all right. It, I do want to move forward and, and talk about education. As I said, we'll be talking about John Lewis throughout the week uh, on, on the show. And um, we'll have some of our panelists who have worked closely with him over the years join us. But, but I do think it's important that we talk today about the great sense of, uh, of confusion, uh, unsettled feelings about how we start schools at all levels um, to uh, keep our students safe, uh, to give them the education they deserve, and all that. So, in addition to Tracy Pendley and Jim Galloway, who are here for that conversation, uh, we're joined again by Professor uh, Joshua Weitz, who is a professor of biology at Georgia Tech, among other things that he teaches, but he's also the uh, director of the Weitz Group at Georgia Tech. And, and uh, Joshua, if I can... Uh, read from the website of the Whites Group, the sentence that stands out in terms of your work that relates to the virus. The primary mission of the Whites Group is to understand how viruses transform human health and the fate of our planet. Well, Joshua, I can't think of a, a more pertinent uh, mission statement in terms of what we're dealing with right now in how the coronavirus is transforming the planet. Yes? Thanks for having me here. And that's right. We're seeing the effects of these very, very small things, things that we can't even see. So it's difficult to imagine that they can have not just the kind of effects on an individual, but on population and global scales, but they do. And our group tries our best to try to integrate models and data and make sense of things that often uh, somehow lie outside the fathom of imagination and trying to get some idea of how we cannot just understand what's happening now, but shape and modulate and hopefully control and plan for a better future. Well, I'm very glad you're part of this conversation today. We, we need to hear from someone who understands viruses. Um, Marlon Walker joins us for the first time. He's an education reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, Marlon, one of the things that uh, uh, attracted us to wanting to invite you to be part of this show, first of all, you've certainly been one of the team looking at how schools across the state are trying to figure out in-person classes, online classes, a mix of the two, that sort of thing. But you also were the uh, host of a town meeting in which I think that the AJC had, in which you heard voices from a lot of different constituencies that uh, are not certain how they want to move forward. Right, Marlon? Absolutely, and thanks for having me. You know, uh, uh, almost two weeks ago now, we had every school district superintendent from the, the major school districts in Metro Atlanta. Uh, we were joined by Grant Rivera from uh, Marietta City Schools. But I think just being bombarded with thousands of comments from parents and teachers and concerned residents from across the, the, the region 
and, and from across the country talking about the plans that many of the school districts had to reopen schools in some shape or form really did a number on the thought processes because we saw almost immediately after that forum the next day, three of the big school districts announced that they were going to go virtual only. Uh, Gwinnett began the conversations and ultimately decided to go uh, virtual only themselves. Although we should say that over the weekend, uh, there was a demonstration by Gwinnett County parents who kind of uh, marched on the school board offices to, uh, to demand that, in fact, the schools open for uh, in-classroom learning. That's not likely to change much, I don't think, at this point, Marlon. Not at all. You know, it, it's been a bit of a mixture. You've got uh, teachers out there as well who are considering another demonstration because not only, you know, did the district decide that virtual learning would be the way to start the year, a lot of the teachers are expected to return to the classrooms this week. Joshua, if I could turn to you to, to frame this conversation in terms of the virus's behavior right now in the state of Georgia. I mean, we know that it has been spiking again uh, over the past weeks. We, we also know, as we reported in the headlines before the show started, that deaths are now starting to accelerate at a rapid pace, 90% increase from one week uh, to the next, and no reason to think that's going to slow down. How would you describe the state of the virus in the spread right now in Georgia? I think we're in a state that follows a dangerous plateau over the summer that we talked about it. And many folks have talked about it, that the cases have been sitting there at about, you know, a thousand a day new cases with constant background levels of hospitalizations and fatalities. But at the same time that I think we were trying to make it clear that the vast majority of Georgians remain susceptible. And what we're seeing now as businesses reopen, as increasing activity, followed by new cases and inevitably hospitalizations and fatalities. And so the state right now is that we're seeing a sequence of events that we've seen elsewhere. At the beginning, there's a lot of talk, well, cases gone up, we don't see the fatalities. They're going to come, but there's a delay. People are hospitalized, there can be severe infections. And so we're at this moment now where instead of being in a place where cases have been driven down and the risk in a classroom might be low, we're now at a place where it's the highest number of new cases and hospitalizations that we've seen in months. And in fact, cases have never been as high. Hospitalizations have never been as high. And one last thought. We're talking about bringing 20 to 25 students, sometimes more, into a single room. And so for months, we've been working on a very simple risk estimate. What's the chance that one or more individuals in a group, whether it's 25 or 50 or some other size, might be infected? And at present, we think it's about a coin flip that someone amongst a group of that size would have COVID-19. So we have to keep that in mind. I know there's a lot of, you know, Tracy can talk about others. There's a lot of consequences of not opening schools, but we can't use magical thinking to get out of the reality that there is a real and present risk that someone might have it in a classroom and therefore might spread it to a teacher, staff member, caregiver, et cetera, and all the consequences. Um, Jim, I do want to hear from Tracy on this, but before I do, I, the, one of the things when, when uh, uh, Joshua talks about magical thinking, one of the things that I've often 
wondered about as I hear this conversation about the fact that, well, children, especially younger children in earlier grades, primary grades, uh, have not turned out to be, uh, they, they don't turn out to be susceptible to the virus particularly. Um, but we don't know, Jim, whether they themselves may become sick with coronavirus. We have no idea at this point. I don't think we have much research that shows us, Jim, that they can't be carriers of the virus and bring it home to their families. Yeah, there, 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 there's a South Korean study on on whether whether uh, student uh, uh, children, say maybe under the age of eight or so, can can transmit uh, as 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 effectively as as older human beings. Uh, but uh, there's plenty. But but it's it's research that has has yet to be duplicated. And I I, th- I think people some people are a little bit skeptical. Uh, uh, I'm I'm seeing. Uh, uh, kind of uh, the medical opinion by the day, and, and Joshua can speak to this a little bit. But but that if you're if you're a a person from ten to nineteen, you transmit just as effectively as as any adult, mm-hmm. uh, and that's and and that's that's a concern, and that's a concern. And uh, you know, it, it's you, you, we we talk about magical thinking. You you what I find most interesting about this, and and Marlon and and and, and Joshua and, and Tracy all can weigh in on this. But you saw some statements come, statements, be, and and they're c- continuing to come out of the White House. It began about uh, right after after the Fourth of July, where President Trump was was uh, was uh, pressing local schools to open. You know, threatening federal funding. We've even last week we had a, a Georgia congressman, Rick Allen, out of Augusta, introduce legislation that would hold federal funding if a school system doesn't have in person uh, uh, class classroom instruction. And what we're seeing now is at the state level among Georgia Republicans, they're not following that. You you will see a few of them engage in that kind of conversation. But for the most part, especially David Perdue, uh, Richard Woods, the state school superintendent, they're kind of they're they're passing the buck to the local school systems. They're not going to get involved in this fight. And it's it, 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 it goes to what what Joshua was saying. It's a coin flip. As to whether the coronavirus will be spread when when school reconvenes, and when and when that happens, not if that happens, when that happens, then you've got then then you've got a a, a situation where where you might have a, a pretty substantial parental revolt. Yeah, let me let me follow up on that with just three facts. One of which is that children can get COVID nineteen. There's a new study out from Harvard School of Public Health suggesting that the rates may be less let's say, half as susceptible as for adults. On the other hand, the CDC did a big serological study and looked around to see who got infected. They found in some places there were more kids, age 0 to 18, who had infections than others. And one last example. There's a new paper out from Israel where they reopened. There was a heat wave. They had to relax mask wearing for a few days. And there was, in quotes, a large COVID-19 outbreak in a high school 10 days after reopening where 15% of staff members and the folks at the high school, the students, were infected in a very short period of time. So this is a reality that can happen in schools. Kids from 0 to 18 can get sick and potentially transmit on. And, you know, just to piggyback on some of that, There's also some concern from the school district superintendents that they're being charged with making a life or death decision, sending students back to school, sending teachers into schools where they may have underlying conditions, even though, you know, there's 
uh, alleged effort evidence that suggests that students are, you know, more likely to be asymptomatic. There, there's this real shift on the fact that nobody seems to be wanting to, to make this decision. I think there are some superintendents who are waiting for people like our governor, uh, Brian Kemp, to make this decision for them. But then there's a lot of grappling back and forth with the fact that this is a potentially, uh, you know, a death sentence for people who go back into those schools with conditions that they may not know about or those that do know about the conditions that they have. All right, Tracy, you've been listening listening patiently to all yeah. of this important uh, information, but you're ground zero. First of all, I assume Burgess Peterson Academy will uh, open online uh, when school resumes. When are you resuming classes, Tracy? We are. So Atlanta Public Schools and a lot of the metro districts, in my opinion, really made the right choice. So we are, teachers go back on August 3rd, students will start on August 24th, and that gives us three weeks to learn how to be better instructors online. It gives us time to go do home visits and connect with our students, you know, if we're standing in the yard and the kids on the porch. It also gives us time to assess their device availability, hotspots, and get materials um, distributed to them. I think it's been a little disheartening for educators to go from being the superheroes of the nation in March (laughs) to now people questioning our dedication in regards to whether or not we find it safe to return. And I can tell you, Bill, that I have not spoken to one educator who doesn't want to be in the classroom, in person, with our kids. We want to give high fives. We want to lean over their shoulder and help them with work. I want hugs. Um, But in terms of safety, it's just not what's best for our, our kids. You know, and they talk about, well, a lot of the teachers are young and the kids are young and they can't transmit. Well, a lot of my students live with grandparents or aunts and uncles. Um, I talked to one educator just yesterday who was absolutely terrified. She teaches in a rural district in Georgia who is going back face-to-face. And her father, who just had open-heart surgery last year, lives with her. And she's not being given a choice of whether or not to return virtually. And so it's really scary. So, Tracy, um, we'll talk about this in more depth, I think, uh, in, in a little bit time. But but why don't we just plunge into it right now for a moment at least. Um, you just pointed out, so first of all, I should say the last time you were on the show was early in the pandemic, not long mm-hmm. after schools everywhere in the state shut down. And you just echoed something that you said back then, which was your efforts, at least individually, and you are a teacher of the year in the state, to be able to go make home visit safely, to go stand in the yards of your students, to try to make sure that they uh, understand that you're there for them, to try to keep them engaged to some extent. But not every teacher is going to be able to do that. And I'm wondering just how much are we losing? The studies suggest that online learning uh, simply does not take the place of working with kids in class. So what are we sacrificing in the interests of public health? I wish I could disagree with you there, but um, I I don't think that it's going to replace it. Now, fortunately, a lot of really great um, corporations and nonprofits spent the summer working on teaching teachers how to be better virtual instructors. And I've been a part of several of those professional developments, and it really is quite awesome what we're able to do right now. But it doesn't replace in-person learning. Um, I think that, you know, right now everyone's kind of in the same boat. 
But what worries me is that now we have our um, better off, like middle class, upper class parents forming these little learning pods. And you know exactly which groups of vulnerable students are being left out. And that is concerning. If now we, there's going to be an even bigger gap, an even larger disparity. Um, my hope is that everyone will embrace virtual learning and that we will just do the very best that we can until we're back in the physical classroom. Um, because the truth is, all of the ideas are bad, <laughs> right? Going back in person is a bad idea. Virtual learning is a bad idea. Hybrid is a bad idea. But we just don't have many options. And so our best bet right now is to go with the safest one. You know, Marlon, one of the things that happens here, it occurs to me, is this is another example of how the coronavirus is exposing even more fully just the disparities in, uh, in people's incomes, uh, in, in, their, in the communities in which they live across the state in so many ways. So what I mean by that, Marlon, is it is heartbreaking to read stories about parents who live in parts of the state where there's no uh, broadband wireless. And so they drive their children to parking lots outside of, you know, restaurants that have wireless where they can hopefully get online to take a class. Um, it's heartbreaking to think that the virus in terms of educational opportunities once again shows us the gaps we have in the people, the residents across this state. It's, it's definitely showcased a lot of the, the haves versus the have nots. You've had school districts that are dispatching uh, buses with wireless on them to certain communities and just being able to, to give the students an opportunity to get through those type of learning situations. You've also got uh, the cab schools right now is working on a plan to make sure that every school or every student has a device. I think that plan, even though the school district is supposed to start on August 17th, the plan is for everybody to have a device by August 26th. So that's still a little bit more than a week into the school year, but that's, you know, everybody's sort of on this mad dash to make sure things are able to happen. Yeah, uh, Bill, if I could just jump in real quick. I know Joshua has got uh, something to, to, to say on all this. But it, what we've got is, okay, we've noted that, that, that the school systems in uh, of metro Atlanta have pretty much all uniformly de uh, decided to go to, to, to virtual uh, classrooms uh, at the beginning of the school year. And that means, you know, most of your 181 classrooms that are going in person or at least a hybrid are going to be out in the rural areas. And these are also the areas that are 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 are, are most poorly served in terms of of healthcare. And uh, our friend Andy Andy Miller has posted something this um, uh, on Friday where he noted that uh, and I, I don't think we've we've it's it's kind of caught on, but you know down in Randolph County, Southwest Georgia, this is the place where they were closing precincts and and and, and we were upset. They have just announced that uh, that the, the the hospital there is being closed in the middle of a pandemic. As 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 kids are likely be uh, being returned to in person classrooms, that has got to be absolutely frightening. Yeah. So, uh, we should uh, say uh, that we're talking about Andy Miller, Georgia Health News. Go ahead, Joshua. Yeah, I, in fact, I was going to say something about infrastructure and the investments that we need to make to to deal with this issue over the long term. When I mentioned magical thinking before, I think that one of the worries I've had from the outset is that this promise of a vaccine or that it'll go away 
allows people sort of an opportunity to say, well, it would probably be better by the fall, so I don't need to make the necessary investments now. At this point, with a couple, I think the total number of public school students in Georgia is probably around 2 million, around that number. Uh, Tracy, well, you may know better than I. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, so about 2 million. Now, there's some new ideas. How do we keep these 2 million children safe and their families and the staff at the schools, many of whom are vulnerable? So what I worry about is that we're caught in a dichotomous thinking paradigm. We either put everyone back or we keep everyone home, and as you said, neither are good options. It takes real money and investment to try to protect people so that we can get kids back into school. And get, not getting into school is partly because we're not sure who's infected. There's such a high fraction of asymptomatic cases. The asymptomatic or mild cases will be even more frequent in younger individuals. The Israel case of this outbreak is a good example. At Georgia Tech, not to switch gears to, to college universities, we have some infrastructure to begin to do large-scale testing. And we've been working very hard over the summer. I'm not saying it's there yet. At least to have capacity to do some version of large-scale testing, not just for surveillance to figure out, oh, we're, we're behind, but actually to mitigate, to try to identify people who may be sick, to pull them out so that they're not going to infect others. And yes, 2 million students, testing them individually is not going to be feasible. But there's pooled testing where one could uh, essentially group people in a way that you could begin to test many. And it would cost millions of dollars, maybe tens of millions of dollars. But the cost to the state, oh, sorry, I'm getting some other phone in this room, so I wasn't aware of. The cost to the state uh, is going to be much greater than that if we don't make those kind of investments. So I at least want to put it out there as being a critical part that we're not talking enough about, large-scale mitigation. I've got to get to a break. Joshua, let me ask you one general question that's, that, that certainly relates to this subject specifically, but it's a bigger question than this. Um, I understand the value of testing. I certainly understand that we've got to speed up the uh, uh, test results so that they have some real value. But, but Joshua, if I test negative for the virus on Monday, that, that doesn't, and, and then I'm going to go to school on Tuesday because I've tested negative, I could turn up positive on Wednesday and the test has done me nothing. I'm not quite sure I've ever understood uh, how testing it doesn't, it's not forward-looking, it's backward-looking. We're, we're losing you. Are you on? Uh, there, there are different kinds of tests. That Joshua, we can, are you, can there you go. Good. And the yeah. idea is that we don't have to have perfect tests in terms of frequency or even sensitivity for them to be effective parts of a mitigation strategy. And so I can hold there, but the idea is that just like a vaccine doesn't have to be perfect. We have to drop the average number of cases to less than one. We don't have to drop it to zero. Mm -hmm. And so the whole point is when we get frequent enough testing with sense enough to start pulling people out, we're doing part of the work to remove and stop chains of transmission. So, again, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to be fascinating. Okay, um, got to get to a break, our first break of the show. Uh, we are going to talk more about uh, schools and the coronavirus, and I do, Joshua Weitz, want to talk about what's happening at the university level and state universities and some of the private universities around Georgia. We'll do all that and more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. 
It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. We're talking about uh, schools and the coronavirus. Uh, The school year should be starting typically in the next uh, week or so. Uh, We're joined today by Marlon Walker, an education reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who's been focusing on this issue with laser-like intensity uh, recently. Jim Galloway, of course, the lead political writer for the AJC. You read him on Wednesdays and Sundays. By the way, his Sunday column is all about the politics of schools and the virus. And Tom Faust would be great if we can post a link to that column on our social uh, media. And we'll talk a little more about that, Jim. You've already said a few things that are based on the column. Joshua Weitz is a professor of biology and the director of the Weitz Group at Georgia Tech, which studies how viruses transform human health and the fate of our planet. Tracy Pendley, the 2020 Georgia Teacher of the Year, a fourth grade teacher at Burgess Peterson Academy, part of the Atlanta public school system. Uh, by the way, CNN has just moved a story that, speaking of the spread of the virus, President Trump's national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, has tested positive for COVID-19. CNN is reporting uh, there is no word yet on when the last time was that he had face-to-face contact with President Trump. But that's a story that clearly people will be watching throughout the day. And Tom Faust sent me a note during the break pointing out that in terms of the spread of the virus, tonight's game between the Miami Marlins and the Baltimore Orioles, baseball is supposed to be back, has been canceled because there are now eight more players, two more coaches who have tested positive, 14 players uh, and coaches on the, the Orioles, you said, right, Tom? have tested, or is it the Marlins? Marlins have tested positive. So this this virus is ubiquitous and doesn't seem to be slowing down. All right, let, let's keep talking first. We'll go to, I want to go to universities in a minute because that's a terribly important component of this. But Marlon, if I could start with you. Um, we've already talked about the disparities uh, in terms of things like wireless um, Tracy's already talked a bit about how just you know online learning doesn't really take the place of in-person learning. But, but there's another aspect of this. Many of the parents out there that I'm sure you've talked to are incredibly frustrated uh, because the fact of the matter is that when their children are in school, they can go out and work. And, and not being able to get out of the house, having to stay home, to supervise their children is taking a toll on families that are losing income because of this. That is one of the problems that parents are talking about, isn't it, Marlon? It is. You know, I think the bigger concern is that a lot of parents are just over, the, you know, what they see as homeschooling. A lot of people are ready to get back to some semblance of normal, and everything seems to revolve around the school district as this, this entity that if you can go back to school, everything can return back to normal. And I think we're, you know, what, on month five now of the pandemic. And so people are just looking for, for this to be the, the reason that they can sort of uh, justify anything else returning to some semblance of normal. But you do have a lot of parents who are talking about 
how hard it is for them to consider going back to school in a virtual learning setting for the fall, but having to, you know, to have in mind those conversations that not everybody is able to work from home. You're also getting the school districts to wade in a little bit on that and having conversations with the business community at large to, to work out some sort of uh, resolution you know, with, with some people being able to work from home a little bit longer, I think a lot of people got called back when, when schools broke technically for the summer. But you, you, you're having those conversations reignited by the fact that schools are going to start virtually again. Tracy, what are parents? How frustrated are some of the parents you talked to? Or have you found that the parents at Burgess Peterson really are just plain happy that they're not exposing their children to risk, but they may be, but it is creating other problems for them, isn't it, Tracy? I'm really seeing a mix of responses kind of based on their own working situations. For example, there's a couple of parents who are constantly asking for childcare because they're (coughs) single parents, they have to work, they're essential employees. Um, And so it does create a lot of gaps right there. And then I see other parents that are, well, we weren't going to send our kid back to the physical classroom anyway. Um, And they're starting to pot up and hire teacher tutors for their students. So I'm really seeing a mix. But, you know, even as an educator, as a parent myself, I agree. It is hard. I have become my five- and nine-year-old daughter's personal assistant. Yes, ma'am, your 930 Zoom is ready. Oh, I'll be right there for your 10 (laughs) o'clock. But it's... You know, it's just, it is what it is, and it's tough, and we're just going to stick it out, and I just have to be hopeful for the best right now. Are we, Tracy, let me ask you, I know, an imponderable question in many ways, one that is, there's no specific answer to it, speculative. Are we losing a generation of educated young people uh, to this virus? I don't think so. I think that teachers are becoming more creative and that it is forcing us to come up with new solutions and new pathways to learning. And so I think that we're going to grow. You know, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Um, I really think we're going to grow. I really think that with the virus going on and all that has been exposed about racial injustice this year and so many people starting to wake up to the reality I'm really hopeful for this generation. I think that we are going to see some incredible things. Just last week, a former student had me on her very first podcast, and this was all her idea, and she wanted to talk COVID-19 and racial injustice. So I'm highly optimistic. (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, Jim, that makes me happy to hear. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and, and I I love a, a strong dose of positivity. Uh, in this season, uh, because it's because because we're we're not seeing a whole lot, and right. and one thing I'd, if if I could bring the the panel on, you know, maybe maybe toss it to Joshua real quick here is is that, and, and the one thing I see here is that we're being asked to make these decisions today. And we won't know the result until say five months ago. We made a series of decisions in March and April. Uh, based on uh, on one set of set of values, and now we're paying the price today. Uh, how do you get people to wrap their heads around uh, the, the the fact that 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 this is that the the, the non immediacy of what's happening is that you have to do today in order to be able to do what you want to do in January? Yeah, 
there's a challenge of investing now and over-investing for what seems like, well, why should I put the money uh, into all this testing when there's a chance maybe the summer will take care of it or some other reason, or the vaccine will show up. So I share optimism insofar as we're realists. And the reality is that we remain closer to the beginning than to the end with respect to the prevalence of the disease, for example, in Georgia and other places. So if we think about this as, well, all we need is a good couple weeks, we're not going to make the right investments. And at least in some places where I'm somewhat optimistic, I mean, Georgia Tech has been rightfully criticized by many, including me and my colleagues, and the Board of Regents has been criticized by many for not allowing, let's say, innovative approaches to bubble up at the individual college level who are trying very hard to bring new approaches to the table, like large-scale pool testing that might be used as a mitigation to ensure that masks are used by everyone. I mean, even just universal masking and using face coverings would help protect not only the students, the teachers, and that's at all levels, and then ancillary the staff and other folks. So in terms of investment, though, that takes money. But that money is not going to be anywhere near the benefit we're going to get in the long term. There's an interesting political story. I know I'm not the political uh, panelist here about the investment in Delta compared to childcare, with a labor economist talking about why we're bailing out airlines, which are important. And obviously Delta is a great stalwart of the local economy. But why not make the same into childcare? And those things can yield in the long term. I mean, as a blue sky vision, if one really brought pool testing or COVID-19 diagnostics to rural areas, they could become the seed and germinate rural health care centers and community health centers. They can be used in the longer term. I do think we need to start thinking long term about infrastructure, not just band-aids to try to get out of this. And the more we think infrastructure and investment, the better off we'll be. Joshua, let's talk about uh, the university. First, the public university system. Um, The Board of Regents, the chancellor, have uh, initially, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong about this, initially they were pushing for full openings in the fall, students returning to campuses around the state. Um, They were not at first saying masks were mandatory. Now they've changed that up a little bit. are you, and you were one of the people, you and a number of professors, certainly at Georgia Tech, were really pushing back strongly on what you were hearing from the Board of Regents. So where do things stand today? To what extent are you going to be required as a professor at Georgia Tech to hold in-person classes, and what about your colleagues at Tech, who were representative of the university system at other schools as well? This is a complex issue, and with respect to the week that we face behind us and the week to come, there's a notion of good trouble, and I'll just only say that in the, by no means a comparison of what we are doing, but at least in the spirit of actually trying to use voices to make change, I do think that there's been an effective use of faculty voices to try to change policies that made no sense with respect to public health but somehow reflected a desire by the Board of Regents to have uniform, a system-wide approach. The reality is that the pandemic isn't so interested in the administrative structure. It can be 
uh, different levels in different places. We have campuses that are in city centers and those in rural areas. And so at least the positive news is after a significant pushback by faculty who have a voice and different platforms to use them, we've managed to get masking required insofar as we're in classrooms. With respect to the mode of instruction, this is where I think it's going to get complicated. We are nominally supposed to be face-to-face with hybrid touch points and a whole list of options that are almost impossible to understand. Operationally, as someone who's been looking at COVID-19 spread for the past six, past six plus months, I don't see how we start face to face. We might get there, but from a safety perspective, from having, uh, let me just say something about the professoriate, we don't tend to be that young to have folks in a room for an hour and a half lecturing. It has all the conditions that are associated with spreading many people in a room with conversation relatively close. The things that we can do, especially as faculty are not teaching lab classes, there are many things that we have an equivalent online option. You just said about Google going fully online for a long time. To the extent that we can go online, we should, and I think many folks will. To the extent that there can be outdoor interactions, we should. And to the extent that we then try to influence as we have in our local universities to make effective policies to essentially drive policy by science, we must. It's in the long-term interest, it's really our ethical and really moral obligation to do so as educators. So uh, we got to get to a break, but just to amplify what Joshua White just uh, said, Google, a story just moved right before we went on the air that Google is now telling its employees not to plan on coming back to their campuses until July of 2021. That tells you how seriously they're taking this. All right, when we come back, I do want to talk a bit about the politics of all this, and I'm especially interested, Jim and Marlon, in how you've been uh, hearing about the politics of it. Marlon, from families that you've been talking to, uh, Jim, uh, as you uh, uh, survey uh, the partisan reactions to all this, we'll get to that after these messages. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Joshua White's professor of biology at Georgia Tech. Um, Tracy Pendley, teacher of the year in the state of Georgia, fourth grade teacher at Burgess uh, Peterson. Um, Jim Galloway is with us uh, as well. And Marlon Walker, AJC education reporter. Marlon, let me start with you and then get Jim involved in this. Um, As you talk to parents, either in your town meeting or uh, as you work on individual stories, uh, can you sense a partisan divide at all uh, among parents who are pushing hard for their kids to get back, who say, we've got to get them back. There's, the virus isn't as serious as some people say. Others saying, are you kidding? It's a disaster. Are you sensing that at all? Is, it, is that a fair question to even ask you? It's, it's close. You've got a lot of people who are looking at the, the same thing that we're seeing from politicians about the economy needing to be restarted. You've also got a lot of parents out here, especially parents from, from uh, low-income families who rely on things such as sports to provide scholarships and, and furthering opportunities for their students. I talked to a woman last month as we started writing stories about football practice and conditioning beginning. 
and you know it's a black family based out of uh, DeKalb County. Her son is transferred into a Gwinnett school, so I think they're in the process of moving over there. But the, the biggest concern for her was how to make sure her, her son was still able to get the college scholarships that he seemed prone or you know ready to, to receive uh, this time a year ago. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think if you look at the entire state, Bill, you've got this. Uh, we all know that that masking has become a a, a kind of a, a a political avatar. That 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 uh, yes yes, uh, President Trump very recently has endorsed ma- uh, masks uh, masks in crowded uh, spaces. He's actually been seen wearing a mask, but it's st- that that div- divide is still out there. And if you if you uh, if you have a you know if you're which means again Republican areas heavily Trump areas those are those are that's rural Georgia that we're talking about and you so you've got a, a, a tension a built-in tension there uh, that's driving a lot of local school board decisions but then of course as Marlon said you've got you know you've got the parents who are worried about this situation or that situation you've got teachers involved. Uh, there was a case over the weekend uh, of uh, uh, State Representative uh, Steve Tarvin up in up in the Chickamauga re- region, up in North Georgia. Uh, he was he was spotted on his Facebook page uh, as, as saying that uh, that uh, he, he he called teachers self-centered crybabies uh, about their their intentions not to go to work. He has backed off that radically. Uh, he has apologized. He's still apologizing. He may still be apologizing tomorrow. Uh, but it's it's it, it's it, it, and and again you've seen it you 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 have seen seen it even at the gubernatorial level, you know I go back to I keep going back to that July fifteenth uh, renewal of of, of of the executive pandemic order, the emergency order issued by by Governor Brian Kemp, the one where he specifically forbade local governments, counties, and cities. From from adapting uh, mandatory mask ordinances. All right. Okay. At the same time, he did that. He gave local school systems, local school boards, the 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 right to uh, to to mandate masks in all situations on their property, classrooms, students, faculty, staff. Mm-hmm. You know. So he recognizes he recognizes the volatility of this this issue. It it could be. Look, if 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 we have a spurt of 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 pandemic closings in in Georgia school systems in in September and October, it could have a tremendous impact on what happens in in not just not just in presidential elections, but up and down the ballot. Tracy, um, when you do hear the White House, the president uh, continuing to push uh, governors to open classes, to insist on in-classroom teaching, saying he may withhold federal funds, education funds from schools, from states that won't do it. How, how do you re- react to that? It's so disheartening, Bill. It's so disheartening. Like I said, you know, we were the superheroes in March, April, May. Um, and to hear now that some feel that they can't even give us federal dollars if we're not going back in person, it's really scary. And I am dismayed that this is where we are um, after everything that I've seen educators put into virtual learning. Um, and to be called crybabies, uh, he's going to need to apologize to me for quite a while on that one. Um, and the educators <laughs> that I represent, yeah. because the educators in this state are absolutely phenomenal. There's so much that goes on behind the scenes. 
You know, I'm watching right now teachers buying their own plexiglass to put into their classrooms for dividers between desks so that kids can sit closer to one another. Um, and so I hope that the attitude continues to evolve and that we move back to our superhero status. <laughs> um, but certainly <laughs> taking federal dollars away is not going to help when so much of our money is already um you know, due to our local tax base and the kids that need it most are the kids that are going to miss out. You know, Joshua, you made a comment a little while ago about how really what we need to be have what we need to have been doing all along uh, is investing in looking at the future. The virus, how do we invest now to uh, stave off further impacts of the virus in the in the future? And, and it, that made me immediately think about the way that the White House has handled uh, the virus um, because there was an opportunity. It's interesting that President Trump is plummeting in the approval ratings on his handling the, of the virus when he had it well within his power much earlier on to make the kind of investment you're talking about to slow its spread and uh, mitigate it in a much more dramatic uh, way. And that all applies to what you think about schools now as well, I think, right? That's right. And I'm not going to get into the mindset of the president or of their decision-making, other than to say that their policies have been an abject failure. With respect to this notion of superheroes, I do view the teachers, educators as superheroes. And I want to point out superheroes can wear masks. I think that's actually a standard thing, part of what people often wear. So can we use that a little bit? And I still find it surprising that masks, that is a low-cost investment. The fact that the Board of Regents, we had to fight so hard to get masks inside classrooms as mandatory is insane. It is about the lowest-cost infrastructure. Give out masks to people. Tell them to wear it. Yet there remains almost a two-to-one divide in the June 2020 Pew Research poll between Republicans less inclined and Democrats inclined to wear them all the time. Everyone should. With respect to testing, the same. It's now the time to prepare, not just for two weeks or three weeks, stop that measures, invest in masks, in compliance, and public health messages, and testing as mitigation, not just seeing how bad we're doing. Um, you get the last word in today's uh, episode of Political Rewind. Joshua Weitz, thank you so much uh, for being here to help us with the science uh, side of this. Uh, Tracy Pendley, what a pleasure to have you back on the show. And I hope you'll come back as the school year gets going. We should have you come back and report to us uh, how I things are so going. Will you do that? I absolutely will. Good. Thank you. Good. For uh, good. Sure. Marlon Walker, really great to have you on. You, too, need to come back as we follow the education story. Jim Galloway, you know what I would love? I would love I, w- I wish we could peek in. We got no time to talk about this. I'd love to be able to peek in on a Zoom session that Tracy is doing with her kids to get an understanding of how they're teaching online. Let's see if we can talk her into letting us have a password somewhere down the line. Jim, thank you for being here. You'll be back again with me on Friday show. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. We're out of time today. We'll be back tomorrow. Uh, And I hope you will please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.